Rabbi Jacobson is a prolific writer, speaker, teacher. He's the rabbi of Congregation Beth Shmuel in Brooklyn, New York. He's the editor of the Alchemy Journal, a Yiddish English newspaper. He has online classes which are attended weekly online by 10,000 people. Something phenomenal. So we are really, really privileged to have this opportunity. Last time I introduced Rabbi Jacobson, I mentioned another point, and I'd like to mention it again. We just heard a small snippet of the Rebbe speaking. But the Rebbe would speak on a Yom Tiv or on a Shabbat for hours on end. The problem is on a Shabbat or a Yom Tiv you couldn't record it. So they would have human recorders. People who would memorize word for word what the Rebbe would say. If you had two days of Yom Tiv and a Shabbat and each day the Rebbe would speak for hours this could accumulate to 12-15 hours of talk. And to memorize all of that, and Rabbi Jacobson was part of the team that would memorize and later transcribe the Rebbe's talks. So it's really, really a great honor for me to be able to introduce Rabbi Jacobson. And ladies and gentlemen, please, Rabbi Jacobson. Not everybody gets to hear their eulogy during their own lifetime. So I feel privileged. Most people have to die in order to hear somebody say nice things about them. So I guess I can live forever. I'm sure my mother-in-law will be very pleased. But thank you very much for your kind words. Last time I was in this building was when it was dedicated. How many years ago? Two years ago. Two years ago, Mazel Tov, at the dedication of this beautiful edifice. And, uh, you know, often Jews dedicate new buildings and then they retire. So it's nice to see two years later the vibrancy of the community and its expansiveness uh, from, strength to, from strength to strength. So I'm privileged to move to be back here. Uh, two years later with with all of you you mentioned the rabbi graciously mentioned about my uh, uh, position to serve as a human tape recorder or oral scribe one of the oral scribes of the Lubavitcher Rebbe after his hour-long talks so I want to begin by sharing with you a little bit about how I got that job I grew up in Brooklyn in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, New York, the world headquarters of the Chabad movement. And my late father would schlep me every Shabbat afternoon to go attend the gatherings and addresses of the late Lubavitcher Rebbe, which took place every Saturday, every Shabbat at 1.30 in the afternoon and continued for hours. Now, to be blunt and frank, I was six years old, and the Rebbe spoke in Yiddish, and he spoke long and complex, and it was deep and profound, and for a six-year-old, it was quite monotonous and boring. I was extremely envious of my friends 
who were doing what Jewish boys should be doing on Eastern Parkway in Brooklyn on Shabbos afternoon, Baseball. which is basically, you know, uh, getting each other's face uh, bleeding, <laughs> some fighting, a few stitches here and there, uh, some sports, uh, not sitting among or standing among 5,000 adult men listening to long, complex uh, tapestries of ideas. So I needed to occupy my time with something. The structure of 770 Eastern Parkway, the Chabad headquarters, had a lot of beams at the time. So I would count the beams, and I became an expert on the amount of beams and their exact location in the structure. But when I finished counting the beams, the Rebbe was still talking. <laughs> so I developed a new skill, and that is, thank God, the one who made the tiles in that building made sure that none of them were symmetrical. So I began counting the tiles on all of the walls, and after months I became an expert on each tile. The exact crevices and shapes and holes in between the tiles. But I mastered that too when the Rebbe, lo and behold, was still talking. So in desperation, I developed a new scheme. I would take the tzitzit, the fringes, of the man sitting near me and tie them to the tzitzit of the man sitting near him. And I would eagerly anticipate the conclusion of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's talks, waiting for these two men trying to stand up and part ways. The, the zenith of my sadistic career was one Shabbat when I managed to tie four men's <laughs> together. And the four men happened to live on the four sides of Crown Heights, the east and the west, the south and the north. And this Sitsis campaign of mine went on for months or for years because there was a lot of strategy and mental planning that went into it. It was like a national, when you watch National Geographics, how the beasts, how the animals, you know, choose their target. I had to first of all choose my target. I had to plan. I couldn't be recognized. It all had to be incognito. I mean, there was a lot of extensive planning that went into it. And uh, so life went on on this uh, level. On one Shabbos afternoon, as I was doing my thing, suddenly I see a finger pointing at me, and I take a look, and it was the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who in the middle of one of his addresses was pointing at me. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> After years, his patience plotsed. And now he might chastise me for tying people's tzitzes for many years right in front of his face. And who knows, he might expel me from Chabad. And you know, when Chabad expels you, where do you go then? I mean, if you're not Jewish enough for Chabad, like, where are you going to go? To Satmar? Where are you going to go? To the Turekarta? I mean, yeah, they accept even the Iranians. So what, what happens then? <laughs> but thank goodness the Lubavitcher Rebbe did not expel me from Chabad. But thank you for inviting me to Chabad. <laughs> Actually, he asked me a question. It was a very strange question. It was a very deep philosophical question. 
to ask a child. And the question, I'll never forget, it was in Yiddish, and then I'll translate it for you, but I understood, I still understand Yiddish. <laughs> His question was, which means, how do you know that the universe exists? I was stunned. <laughs> I thought, you know, Tzitzis, stop tying Tzitzis, get out of this world, get a life, go play somewhere else. Like, how do you know that the universe exists? First of all, it was a brilliant pedagogical and educational idea. I, did, I figured that out only recently, of how to communicate, right? It's like if your child is really getting you upset, just ask him how he knows the world exists. <laughs> Brilliant. Like, what? How do I know the world exists? I don't know how I know the world exists. I never thought about it. I'm busy tying tzitzis. <laughs> and the Rebbe was waiting for an answer. And 5,000 eyes were gazing at this little child, young child, including the Lubavitch Rebbe, waiting for an answer how I know the world existing. And I was thinking to myself, you know, Lubavitch Rebbe, we live in a democracy, live in Letlef. I did not disturb you during your talks. Why would you want to disturb me during my sister's project? And I thought we had a very peaceful agreement. I don't bother you. You don't bother me. But he would not take his eyes off me, and he wanted an answer. But I was clueless. I did not know what to answer. I, don't, I didn't know how I knew the world existed. So he waited for like 20 seconds, which seemed like eternity. And when he saw that I wasn't answering, he broke out in a very big smile, almost a laugh. And he answered the question for me. And he told everybody that he's answering the question instead of me. And he said, in Yiddish, this child responds, how do I know the world exists? Because the opening of the Bible, the opening of the Torah, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, reads, Bereshit, bara elokim, et hashamayim It's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how he knows the world exists, because the Torah says that God created the heavens and the earth. It must be that the world exists. The next week, the next Shabbat, I was afraid he might ask me another question of the same nature. So instead of tying tzitzis, I decided I'm going to listen. So that if he asks me the question, I might know what to answer. That's why I told you what he did was very wise. So I listened. And actually I understood some of what he said and I found it very interesting. So I began listening every week to his talks. And slowly I became drawn into it and I developed a uh, touch for it or a skill for it. And since then I sat at his feet until uh, the end, until his illness and his passing and absorbed many of his talks, repeating them, transcribing them. Until my last breath I will thank the Almighty for giving me the privilege of sitting at the feet of such a great genius and giant and absorbing his ideas, his depth, his approaches, his perspectives, and today having the privilege of sharing some of those ideas with audiences, Jews and non-Jews, around the world in various lectures and seminars and retreats and programs, including here this evening. But when I grew up, 
I went back to the transcript of that talk to see why he asked me this question. What was he talking about? And I observed that he was discussing the innocence of children. That children, unlike adults, have that ability to see the world from a very pristine, sacred and pure perspective. Adults know existence from the stresses and pressures of life. Children, untarnished by the corruption and stress of life, at least relatively to adults, are capable of seeing the world from a very pure place. They know the world exists because the Torah says, in the beginning God created heaven and earth. In other words, they can experience life from the verse, in the beginning God created heaven and earth. You know, it's like the story of the child who asked his mother for $100, so she sent him to her husband, to daddy. He asked daddy for $100, daddy said, $100? Come on, here is a dollar, go buy yourself a can of soda and let me do my thing on the computer, of course. What happens when daddy and mommy reject you? So the child goes to God. Child writes a letter to God, Dear God, I really need a hundred dollars. Mommy said no, Daddy said no, I turn to you. The child put the letter in an envelope, stamped it, and addressed it to the Lord of the USA. It happened in America. The post office gets the letter. The Lord of the USA, who's that? Who's the Lord of the USA? So they send it to somebody they think matches this description, at least somewhat, President Obama. <laughs> Barack Obama gets the letter, he opens it, he's very moved by the innocence of a child, you know, asking God for a hundred dollars. Obama tells his secretary, he says, you know, send the kid five dollars in the mail. President Obama is certain a child gets five dollars in the mail, he will be overjoyed. The child gets the money and sits down to write a thank you letter to God. This is how the text read, Dear God, thank you so much for sending me one hundred dollars. However, I notice that for whatever reason, you were compelled to send the money through Washington. <laughs> Those idiots deducted 95% before they sent me the rest of the money. So God, I really thank you, but do me a favor next time, try to send the money directly to me. The innocence of children, the power of children. And so, I always feel that that question that the Rebbe asked me as a child was essentially a message. It was an empowering message. That when I travel and speak, to bring people closer to the perspective of life, to a perspective on the world that is synchronized, with that verse in the opening of the Torah, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. A heaven and earth that is a replica, that is a mirror of the world God intended to create. God intended that we live in. Or a world in which there's harmony, both in the macrocosm and in the microcosm. Harmony in the macrocosm and harmony in the microcosm between the mind the body, and the soul. Now the most powerful element in which harmony is often challenged is of course in the area of relationships. I don't have to tell you that relationships today are increasingly challenging. 
and the harmony in relationships. Both the harmony within each person themselves and the harmony between spouses, between parents and children, between friends, between family members, between colleagues, business partners, and so forth, is often extremely challenged. I mean, you know the story about the Jewish couple celebrating their 50th anniversary. And at the anniversary, she gets up and says, I want to make a toast to myself for sticking it out with him for 50 years. A toast to him for sticking it out with me for 50 years. And I want to tell you that the 50 years of our marriage have passed like two days. People were moved. The Jewish couple, after 50 years, not only are they on speaking terms, but apparently the marriage was so beautiful and heavenly, it just flew by like two days. There was, however, one nudnik in the crowd. I assume you know what a nudnik is. There are three types of Jews. There are shlemils, there are shlemazels, and there are nudniks. The shlemil is the guy who pours the soup on the shlemazel. The nudnik is the guy who wants to know what type of soup was it. I can tell you from experience, every Jewish audience, excluding this one, of course, has a nudnik. The nudnik is the person who asks the right questions at the right time. So the nudnik at the wedding anniversary feast gets up and says, Excuse me, ma'am. Ma'am, why do you say that your relationship for 50 years went by like two days? Why don't you say it went by like one day? I told you he was a nudnik. A world-class nudnik. So she says, because our marriage for 50 years has been like two days. Tisha B'Av and Yom Kippur. Those are the two toughest days in the Jewish calendar. You know, my friends, there's an old question the mystics ask, what is the primary difference between children and adults? And one of the answers that's given is, children don't keep grudges. Adults keep grudges. How many times did your child say, Mommy, I don't like you. Tati, I hate you. I don't want to be friends with you ever again. You're not my friend. <coughs> Twelve minutes later, the child becomes your best friend once again, especially if you gave him or her a little ice cream. But when an adult tells you, I don't want to talk to you. I'm not your friend anymore. Twelve years later, <laughs> they're usually still harboring a grudge. So the capitalists ask why. Children are the immature ones. Why do they let go of their grudges in minutes, while adults harbor grudges often for years and decades? And the answer, my dear friends, given by one of the great Jewish mystics is this. Children choose being happy over being right. Adults often choose being right over being happy. So for children, being happy is much more important than being right. For adults, it's often exact opposite. Adults will often want to be miserable, but they're not going to be wrong. They will make sure to be right. In life, everyone has to make that choice. Is it more important for you to be happy, or is it more important for you to be 
right. Now, here we approach the fundamental question, and that is how? How do we create better harmony? There's no question we are facing for years now, and it only increases every year, a crisis. It's a crisis in relationships. It's a crisis in harmony. I come from a city called New York, and there the amount of breakdowns in families is mind-staggering. 50 or 60 percent of marriages end up in a divorce. That means every other wedding you attend, every other marriage, after a number of years is going to fail. More than a million children a year are added to the list of fragmented and broken families. In some situations it saves lives, you know, if there's abuse and so on and so forth. But in most situations it's not a life savior. It's simply the breakdown of a family where a generation technologically advanced like no generation earlier in history. A generation experiencing prosperity notwithstanding a recession unprecedented in previous generations. A generation which in so many ways in high tech and science and so forth has made incredible investments. And yet when you put a simple man and woman in a house, they can't get along. <laughs> Do you remember the family portrait of your family of the picture that was taken in 1931? You know that family portrait? There are like 18 people in the portrait. Is anybody ever smiling? Nobody, right? Everybody's like this. <laughs> Nobody ever smiles in those family portraits. But somehow the patriarch and the matriarch, your great-grandparents, were married for 66 years. They produced 12 kids, and they weren't that miserable. Today we have websites and seminars. Go into Barnes & Noble or any bookstore. There's 780 new books on relationships. There's retreats and there's programs, there's seminars, there's lectures, there's books, there's essays, and so on and so forth. Today, 11-year-old kids know more about intimacy than your 92-year-old grandmother <laughs> And yet, often, often, at wedding pictures, everybody is smiling, unlike those portraits. The photographer will shoot you if you don't smile. But a few months later, a few years later, lawyers are involved over settlements because of fighting and quarrels and so on and so forth. What did our, my great-grandmother, your great-grandmother know about harmony that we don't? When Henry Kissinger became the Secretary of State of the U.S., the Prime Minister of Israel's Golden Meir, so she coined him a famous letter in which she looked forward to work with him because Kissinger is a Jew. And you know what he wrote back to her? My dear Mrs. Mayor, I have to clarify my priorities. Number one, I am an American citizen. Number two, I am Secretary of State of the U.S. Number three, I happen to be Jewish. So she writes back, that's excellent. That's awesome. Because in Israel, we read from right to left. <laughs> that was a very clever response. <laughs> but I want to tell you that in relationships, there's also two ways of reading relationships. There's left to right and right to left. And it's important to talk about the right to left perspective. And that's a perspective I want to share with you this evening, albeit briefly. And I draw on one of the first marriages in Jewish history. At the surface, 
It's strange, it seems as dysfunctional as a marriage can get, and as problematic as a relationship can get, and it always bothered me and perturbed me whenever I read the story again. And this is a marriage recorded in the book of Genesis, and a marriage that affected every person sitting in this room, whether you like it or not, or you admit it or not. And that's the marriage of the third patriarch of the Jewish people. His name was Jacob, who fell in love with a woman named Rachel. In the book of Genesis, Jacob meets a girl, beautiful, calmly, shapely. Her name is Rachel. And he wants to marry her. And he asks her father. The good old days he used to ask the father. <laughs> and the father says, sure, for seven years of labor. And he labors for seven years. <laughs> right, today it's a little different, right? <laughs> today you don't ask the father, nor does the father say for seven years of labor. In fact, there was a story where this guy was dating this girl. And they were dating for years. And she really liked him. And he liked her. And he proposed. And she said, great, but now it's time to talk to my dad. And dad saw him, and dad said, you know, I heard great things about you, and I really want to welcome you into the family, and I want you to know, you probably know, that I have a business that is extremely successful. I mean, it's a multi-million dollar business, and we treat family as our own, and we treat in-laws as our own. So I just want to tell you, at this very moment, as you stretched out your hand in marriage, and my daughter agreed, you become a full-fledged partner. 50% of the shares in my business that I built now belong to you. This man can't believe it. The 23-year-old little pisher, as they say. I don't know what's the word for that. 23-year-old schmageggy. Uh, and now suddenly, I mean, within five seconds, he's a multimillionaire. And his future father-in-law says, so I hope to see you tomorrow morning. It's now yours. You'll come in tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock, and I'll take you around. I'll show you what's going on. He says, you know, I would love to, but I'm very sorry. Because I have migraine headaches. And whenever I'm between people, I get spasms and I go crazy. And I disintegrate and I turn into a pumpkin. So I really would prefer not to do it. He says, okay, no problem. I'll give you a desk. You'll be on the telephone. He says, it's a very big problem. And I have telephones. When, I hear it. when the telephone rings, I hold telephones. I have very negative reactions. It has to do with rage in my family. You know, my grandfather was an alcoholic. My mother's a codependent. My father's an addictive gambler. There's a lot, a lot of issues. Somehow the telephone is some psychological fetish. Whatever it is fetish and therefore I really can't deal with telephones. He says, no problem, I'll take you to the section of the factories, you'll become my director there. He says, no, whenever there's noise, I want to commit suicide because I really have a lot of issues. So, his future father-in-law looks at him and says, you know, what do you want me to do with you? I just gave you 50% of the shares in my company worth tens of millions of dollars. I ask you to come into the office, you can't come into the office, you can't sit at a desk, you can't take a telephone, you can't go to the factory. What should I do? And he says it's simple, buy me out. <laughs> but, but when... <laughs> But Jacob actually worked for seven years in order to be able to marry Rachel. And at the end of seven years, he tells his future father, whose name was Laban, I'm ready. He says, great. He makes a feast. He invites everybody to the party. But you know what he did, right? He switched the younger sister 
with the older sister. Rachel was switched with Leah. And the Torah says Leah did not possess Rachel's beauty. In fact, her eyes were weak and poor and impoverished. But the, the bride was veiled. So Jacob did not know that he's entering into marriage with Leah instead of Rachel. The party ended, the dancing ended, everybody went home, they paid the caterer, they paid the florist, they paid the musician, $90,000 for flowers, I mean, whatever the style was. The How about the rabbi? Oh, the rabbi. And what happens is, it's before Edison's day, so there's no electricity, there's no lights. Don't ask me why nobody lit a candle, but they did not. They went to their tent, to their home. It was pitch dark. <coughs> Jacob consummated the marriage with Leah. And then the Bible describes the scene. Dawn breaks. Sun rises. Glimmers of light enter their tent. Jacob takes a look at his side. And he goes, whoops. <laughs> it's the wrong one. In the morning, it's Leah. He comes running to his father-in-law and he says, Why did you deceive me? And the father-in-law says, I deceived you. It's immoral to marry off the younger daughter before the older daughter. That's, by the way, how you know you're dealing with a real crook. <laughs> you come out of the conversation feeling guilty. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob says, can I marry Rachel? His father says, sure, for another seven years of work. I'll give you my second daughter. And the Torah says he agrees. He marries Rachel. He works another seven years. But he loves Rachel more than Leah. He decides to stay married to Leah. But he marries Rachel too. And he loves her more than Leah. This always perturbed me to no end. I mean, I'm going to ask the men sitting in this room to imagine for a moment that happened to you. <laughs> you love this girl, you get married, you consummate the marriage at night after the wedding, morning comes, you take a look at your left side, it's your mother-in-law. <laughs> or your sister. I mean, God Almighty. What is the meaning of the story? Why did it happen to him? Now, this was not an isolated marriage in Alaska. Understand that every Jew living today is a product of that mistaken marriage. Maybe this is where the success of our functional families comes from. Maybe this is the ultimate Freudian explanation for all of our issues. The Jewish people come from Jacob. Jacob married the wrong woman. <laughs> so what does that tell us about the Jewish people? <coughs> and about Jewish marriages? And about Jewish mothers and Jewish fathers and Jewish love and Jewish romance? What is the meaning of the story? This is the foundation of the Jewish people and the Bible makes sure to tell us that he married the wrong wife. Great. Beautiful. Just wonderful. What is even more strange, my dear friends, is at every Jewish wedding, 
there's something called the badekin. Do you know what that is? The groom veils the bride. Why is the bride veiled at the wedding ceremony? And the answer is because Leah was veiled. That's why Jacob did not recognize her. My question to you, dear friends, is would it not make sense that at every wedding the groom should unveil the bride so that he does not repeat the same mistake? I mean, do you realize under that canopy called a chuppah, when he places that lovely ring on her finger and he says, You are consecrated to me. We enter into the covenant of marriage. Arguably the most important moment of that relationship. He does not see her, nor does she see him. I mean, for all practical purposes, can be Hillary. <laughs> she may be a good Secretary of State for my country, but I'm not sure. Uh, whatever. <laughs> what is the meaning of this? Why are we trying to perpetuate the same tragedy at every Jewish wedding? Look at her for heaven's sake. Make sure it's the right one. What's strange as well is, Rachel died at a very young age, you know, during childbirth. Who did Jacob live most of his life with? Leah. Furthermore, who is Jacob buried with? Rachel is buried in Bethlehem. Jacob and Leah together are where? In Hebron in the city of Hebron, in the cave of Machpelah. So 3,600 years later, Jacob and Leah are interred together, not Jacob and Rachel. Why? What's the poetic justice being conveyed here? Friends, tonight I share with you one perspective based on the teachings of Jewish mysticism, of Kabbalah, and of Hasidism. You know, the biblical characters are not just physical characters. Biblical characters are also allegorical characteristics that mirror the qualities that people struggle with in their own lives. In other words, every personality in the Torah is not just a historical person who lived at a certain period of time, but every figure in the Torah represents and embodies and personifies a certain quality or characteristic that lives timelessly in our own psyches so that their stories are really reflections of our stories. And this is one of the great contributions of Jewish mysticism to depict the metaphor behind the figure to explain the spiritual and psychological relevance of every character. So Rachel and Leah are not only two sisters, they're also two sisters, but they also represent two parts of every person. What are the two parts that Rachel and Leah represent? Rachel is the beautiful girl. Yifat Toar Yifat Mare. She was gorgeous. Her physique her countenance, her face, her personality. The word Rachel, Rachel, anybody who knows Hebrew knows what Rachel means? The word Rachel in Hebrew. Right? A you, a sheep, 
The sheep, the ewe, is a very docile animal, relaxed, serene, bright. It has usually a bright, white, luminescent color. Those who know gematria, gematria is numerology. Every letter in the Hebrew alphabet has a number. Rachel, Rachel, is 238. It's the same numerology like the words of Genesis, Vayihi or, and there was light. Because when Rachel came into a party, everybody said, ah, there's light. She was a person of light. Light and light in both meanings. She was light, not heavy, <laughs> and she was light as in luminescent. She loved herself and she loved others like a gentle, kind sheep. She was beautiful. And she represents the light in every person. She represents those aspects in you that are endearing to you and are endearing to others. Rachel represents the gorgeous qualities in people that simply make them attractive and beautiful. And everybody has those qualities that make you attractive. It's what you write on your resume. It's what you try to project. It's what people like about you. Whatever it may be. Do you know what the word Leah means in Hebrew? The word Leah, right, exhausted. Leah represents those qualities in us that make us tired. The Torah says the eyes of Leah were weak because she used to weep a lot. Leah represents the struggling soul. For Rachel, life is a serene cruise through tranquil waters. For Leah, life is a war on a battlefield. Leah was a very deep soul, but also a very complex soul. And the two go together. Leah struggled. She struggled for herself. She struggled for her identity. She struggled to deal with her inner challenges and she became exhausted from those challenges. Leah means tired, exhausted. Each of us has a Rachel and a Leah within. We have those aspects of us that are beautiful, comforting, endearing, and we have those aspects within ourselves that make us tired and exhausted. Those are the challenges within you. Those are the questions, the dilemmas, existential ones, psychological ones, emotional ones, spiritual ones. It's the demons, the skeletons, the shadows, and the ghosts. Are there any of those in Toronto? <laughs> that people have to deal with. There is no Rachel or Leia exclusively. We're a composite of both. What's the name of that film? The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Now, Let's go back to the story. You see, the story of Jacob marrying Leah instead of Rachel is not an isolated story that happened 3,600 years ago. The reason the Torah tells us the story and the reason that happened to the founding father and mothers of the Jewish people is because the Torah is telling us about most marriages since. You see, when you date, and when you're engaged, and when you're getting married, you usually think that you're married Rachel. <laughs> but sooner or later, you will discover that you ended up 
watching this tennis match for hours, eating chips. The whole couch is now oily. He falls asleep at 12.30, snoring on the couch, in his clothes, wakes up two in the morning like a hippopotamus. He walks to his bedroom. Half of his bed is filled with laundry. He goes to sleep and nobody comments about what a disgusting human being he is. But after you get married, <laughs> suddenly you realize things. I mean, the first thing you realize is what the bathroom looks like after his showers. Noah's floods doesn't really describe it. I mean, the Katrina disaster in Orleans, maybe. What is worse after his shower? Most men use the wrong towels with which to dry up their bodies. They use the towels with the tassels on the bottom. Those morons called men don't realize that you have to distinguish between two categories of towels. Towels that are made to use to dry your body. And towels of sole raison d'etre is to create artistic symmetry between the wallpaper and the rug, the toothpaste and the toilet. And this idiot Schlamazel Schlamiel is using these towels to wipe his body if you're supposed to stay married to him. <laughs> You also discover he drinks from seltzer bottles. Yeah. He licks tops. You discover his temper, and then his ego, and then other things as a rabbi I can't mention. And then you see him for the first time in the presence of his mother. And from a macho, self-confident guy, he's reduced to an ant. He can't finish sentences. Not to give his mother nachas. She might think he's having a functional life. That will reduce her anxiety. And a Jewish boy does not do that to his mother. So when she asks him, how are you doing? He's like, I'm doing? Where are you going to live? Who says I'm living? So she can go home feeling guilty. All these qualities you discover after marriage. And it's conversely as well. You're marrying a woman, a Rachel, picture perfect, picturesque, impeccable, flawless, beautiful. And it's awesome. And then you get married and suddenly you discover some skeletons. You discover the nudnik. You discover their insecurities. You discover the kvetching. You discover the fears, you discover people's inner demons and challenges. And it's not because you didn't date long enough, it's because the nature of what marriage is. So you date rich, but you marry later. And here is what the Torah is telling us. Open your hearts. If you grow up, and if you work on yourself, and if you travel together in the journey of life, you will discover that it was the Leia element of your spouse that was intended for you.
because the racial element of your spouse is those aspects of your spouse that suit your ego, that suit your imagination, that sit well with your initial identity and character. They don't challenge you to take someone else seriously. The layer elements of your spouse rattle your system. They shock the hell out of your imagination. They shake you up to your core. And you could do two things. You can either run, or conversely, you can crush, or conversely, a third option, and that is become the person you're capable of becoming. Nietzsche was right when he said, Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, who said, we don't love other people, we love our version of them. When you date somebody, when you marry somebody, who do you love? Do you love her or do you love your version of her? <clears throat> there are two wives, there are two husbands. There's your wife and there's your version of your wife. There's your husband and there's your version of your husband. Which one do you love? Rachel represents those qualities of my wife or my husband that sit well with my expectations. It's the spouse that I dreamt of. It's the spouse that I can put into my Blackberry and iPhone. It's the spouse that I can compress to suit my needs. It's the spouse that I always imagined I would be able to hold hands with, walk on the beach, listen to Bach, and let the poetry flow from my mouth like milk and honey. <laughs> But then there is marriage, and suddenly I discover Leia, I discover my real spouse. And here I'm like, whoa, God Almighty. There are five billion people in the world. Why me? <laughs> a woman once called up, she saw a classified ad in the New York Times for picking lemons. So she phones. The guy says, you have experience with picking lemons. I mean, I don't know if you ever harvested lemons. It's not an easy tree to harvest. She's never had a lot of experience in picking lemons. I've been married three times. <laughs> there was a guy the other day in the cemetery on Bathurst and Roswell, and he's standing, uh, he, a young guy, and he watches an old woman standing at a tombstone. And she's talking to the tombstone, and she's weeping. Why did you have to die? Why did you have to die? And he approaches her and says, who died? And she says, my husband's first wife. <laughs> that was a joke, by the way. Everything else I said was serious, but that was a joke. <laughs> my friends, the racial elements of your spouse challenge you to take yourself seriously. The layer elements of your spouse challenge you to take someone else seriously. The layer elements of your spouse challenge you to transcend your ego and to create space for otherness. Otherness is the key. Rachel is the spouse that fits into my bubble. 
Rachel is the spouse that works for my ego. Leah is the spouse that challenges so much of me and therefore forces me to create a space for someone who's not me. And what is the essence of a relationship? What is at the core of the drama, the mystique, the challenge, and the blessing of a relationship is not creating space for others and becoming what you're capable of becoming in that difficult, sometimes difficult, but blessed process. Back to the story of Jacob. You know why the Torah tells us this story? You know what happened? Because the Torah is telling us this simple message. When you're getting married, you must know something. And that is, if you're not ready to marry Leah, don't get married. If you're only ready to marry Rachel, you're basically ready to marry yourself. Do that. And maybe one day somebody will convince the Supreme Court that marriage to the self should be recognized with a tax discount, especially if you have a split personality. In fact, I think it would make for a wonderful marriage. No divorce. Not too much fighting. Marry yourself. I like myself. I want to marry myself. I, and I cannot guarantee you that in 10 years that will not be recognized. But if you're, married only, if you're ready only to marry Rachel, you're not ready for marriage. Because marriage means creating space for the totality of the other person. You see now why we cover the bride during the wedding? When we place the finger, when we place the ring on her finger, she has to be covered. You know why? What the groom is telling her through that gesture is, I'm committed to love not only the part of you that I see tonight. I'm committed to love also the part of you that I will see in a year, in five years, and in 15 years from now. Life changes people. There's no life that doesn't change people. We grow, we suffer losses, we endure challenges, hopefully we have children. We grow in so many ways. Our bodies change, our psyches develop in so many different directions. I cover her face to say, I am making a space for you. Not only for the Rachel, but also for the Leah. I know that there are parts of you that I don't see tonight. I can't see tonight. Even if we dated for a long time, how can I know everything? You don't even know everything about yourself. Certainly not what the future will bring. And tonight I'm creating that space for you. Tonight I am committed to love not only Rachel, but also Leah. And what happens in life is Rachel dies and Jacob remains with Leah. Psychologically what that means is the image of your spouse as a picture-perfect, impeccable and flawless creature dies away with time as the two sisters must merge into one being. And as couples grow together and work on themselves, the two sisters become one in their life 
where you begin to cherish, love, and accept the totality of the other person. This does not mean that abuse should be tolerated and welcomed. This does not mean that when my husband is doing something that's unacceptable, I should say, great, Leia! No. Leia was a workout person. Leia was a righteous woman. Leia was a deeper woman than Rachel. But Leia had to fight for herself. A relationship with Leia means recognizing that every person is on a journey. <coughs> recognizing that every person has challenges. And creating space for the idiosyncrasies. And for the journeys. And for the growth. And for the fears and for the challenges of the other person. This is so difficult for many couples today. You see, what happens is this. The story of Rachel and Leah is a cosmic story. If you would see Leah at the first date, you know what you would do? You would say, bye-bye love. Bye-bye <laughs> happiness. Go enjoy your life with somebody else. So during courtship we see Rachel. We only get to see Leah after the wedding. This is God's way of allowing us to marry Leah. Now what do you do when you see Leah? Some people call a lawyer. <laughs> Some people run away into isolation. They don't want to deal. Others crush their spouse so that they obliterate their personality. I saw a t-shirt, I'm very easy to get along with once you learn to worship me. <laughs> That's the motto of some people. You just learn to surrender. Don't speak up. And there'll be peace in the home. There'll be harmony in the home. But there's a third way. Don't run and don't crush. Celebrate otherness. Open yourself up to a person who's not you. Create a hole in your ego. Create an emptiness in your ego that is not filled with you and that somebody else can enter into it. And in that process, you will discover a harmony that was unexpected. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to create space truly for another person without being threatened by it, without running in the other direction, without feeling that you have to crush it. If you're not ready to create that space, you're not ready for marriage, don't get married, and that's the story of Jacob. You're married late. Are you ready for it? If not, you still need to work on yourself. Because if you don't work on yourself before marriage, you're going to blame your spouse for things that she is not to blame or he is not to blame. Don't think that your spouse will perfect all your own fears and concerns and dilemmas. It's not their job to fill your voids. You fill your voids. And now create space for otherness. But you know, my friends, there's Rachel and Leah and every person also in their own journey. When you wake up in the morning, there are two days ahead of you. There's the day 
that you wrote down in your Blackberry, in your iPhone, it's a beautiful day from appointment to appointment, from errand to errand, everything is accounted for. But then there is the day that God plans for you in his Blackberry. <laughs> because each of us has those aspects that are stress-free, but we also have those aspects that drive us insane. We have the struggles, we have the challenges. The only people I know that are perfectly happy are the people I don't know well. <laughs> but everybody else struggles each in their own way. And it's embracing that dynamic of your life, realizing that it's in your struggles, if you have the courage to look them in their eyes, that will allow you to reach the destination for which your soul came down to this world, in which you will reach your ultimate harmony, your ultimate death. So, my friends, this guy really was short of breath. He went up the steps to Chabad tonight, and he could barely breathe. So his wife is very concerned. Monday morning she makes an appointment for him. They go to the doctor. The doctor checks him out for a full hour, sends him out of the office, calls in his wife. The doctor says, I have very bad news for you. Your husband works too hard. He's deteriorating. I don't see a way out. He's going down and down. In a year or two, he'll just lose his energy. He's finished. The wife says, is there anything I can do to help him? The doctor says, yes. Take a pen and paper and write down five instructions and follow them for the next ten months. If you do these five things for ten months, I promise you, his stress level will decrease and will bring him back slowly to health. She takes out a pen and paper and tells the doctor to go ahead. The doctor says, number one, when your husband comes home from work every night, dinner must be ready. On the table, with a plastic over it to retain the heat. There's no such a thing when he comes home, you're on the telephone contemplating what you would like to make for dinner. Or talking to your friend about what she made for dinner. No! Supper must be ready for him. He works very hard. And what should be for dinner? Dinner must be six, seven courses. And the food you serve must be authentic food. Which means not soybeans, tofu, <laughs> barley kernels, and some frozen yogurt for dessert, or a granola bar, or a new healthy bar of chocolate that you discovered and you cut up into 19 pieces and give them one piece. No, you gotta serve them real food. Food that is killing people all over the place. Like rice and meat and potato and pasta. That's the food that nourishes him. And he should eat to the point that he can't breathe anymore. And that's what he eats. Which is, by the way, sometimes not such bad advice, by the way. I'm going to tell the women, you have to know two things about men. They have to be fed and watered. <laughs> and sometimes it doesn't get so much more complicated than that. 
A woman once came to see me, she wants to get divorced. I said, why? She tells me, my husband is an undomesticated, selfish beast. I happen to know her husband. It was a little strange to me. He actually was a nice guy. He was a nice guy. She tells me, you don't know him. I know him. I didn't say anything. I asked her, tell me, what time does he come home from work? She tells me he comes home six. I say, what time does you serve dinner? She says, usually eight. I said, your husband is not an undomesticated, wild, selfish beast. He's simply a hungry animal. <laughs> Women think that when men are grouchy, the relationship is in crisis. It's not. Feed the guy. Feed him nine courses until he can breathe and he'll become an angel. Not always. Some men are really lemons. And you gotta take them to therapy. But not all of them. Some of them just have to eat till their stomach explodes and then they're the nicest people in the world. Try it. And instead of spending $18,000 on therapy, give the money to me or to Chabad and just feed the guy I have saved marriages with this advice. <laughs> Women don't realize, because men, when they're hungry, don't complain about how hungry they are. Men don't walk around the house saying they're hungry. They just get angry and upset about everything. The pen is in the wrong place, they freak out. The guy couldn't care less where the pen is or where the keys are. He's just starving. He, they're just too macho. They can't admit how hungry they are. <laughs> Women don't understand that because when women are hungry, all they do is they walk around the house saying how hungry they are. I haven't eaten all day and I can't eat. So the smart husband looks at his wife and says, You're hungry? She says, I'm starving. I haven't eaten today, I haven't eaten yesterday. So the brilliant man says, So go eat! Do you think your wife doesn't know that when you're hungry you're supposed to eat? She doesn't want it. She wants to complain how hungry she is and she wants you to empathize and tell her, not only have you not eaten today, you haven't eaten yesterday, you haven't eaten three days ago. In fact, you haven't had a meal since the day I met you, nor have you slept one night. In fact, tomorrow I'm going to transmit your name to the Guinness Book of World Records as a woman who has eaten and slept 13 years straight. But the trick is you gotta mean it, because if you don't mean it, it's gonna come back to bite you. Don't blame me then. You gotta be sincere. Indeed, your wife has not had a normal meal in many, many years. So women don't understand that when men are hungry, they don't talk about food. They're just upset about everything in the world. They want to move when they're hungry. They're ready to sell the house. They're ready to change jobs. Just give the guy a meal and they'll be quiet. Again, not always. Your husband needs therapy. But a lot of them, a lot of them just need a little food. So this is the first instruction. We're in the doctor's office, you remember? I'm in a little story. So this is the first instruction the doctor gave her. He got to eat and eat. The second instruction the doctor said, when he finishes eating, even if he offers to clean up, reject it. <laughs> Refuse to take help. You got to tell him, darling, you had a hard day at work. I appreciate so much what you do. And I really don't want to burden you in the house. You know me, what am I? I'm a housewife. I really do nothing. Just raise a couple of kids, do the laundry, I mop sometimes. But you really work hard, so don't help me clean up. 
Don't help me clean up. I had a perfect day. I'm not tired at all. You go watch Larry King. Do Seinfeld on the couch. I will clean up. I'll put away the dishes. I'll sleep. I'll mop. I'll do the laundry. And at three in the morning when I'm done, I'll join you on the couch for the honeymooners. Or I love Lucy or Mash or whatever. I don't know. The third instruction the doctor says, you have to compliment your husband 20 times a day. <coughs> you have to tell him, I know you certainly should have been the Prime Minister of Israel. <laughs> or certainly of Canada, President of the US, the leader of the free world, really. I mean, with your brilliance, with your brilliance, unbelievable. 20 times a day, your husband's ego has to be massaged by you. <laughs> Advice number four, the doctor tells her, I can't repeat publicly. Advice number five, the doctor says, you could never disagree with your husband again. Whatever he says, you must truly agree with him. If you do this for 10 months, his stress level will decrease, will be able to save his life. The woman finishes writing, she leaves the office, they get into the car to go home. Her husband looks at her and says, you were by the doctor after the checkup. Tell me, what did the doctor tell you? The woman looks at her husband and says, the doctor said that you are going to die. <laughs> I want to wish you that the next 50 years of your relationships and the 50 years afterwards should pass like two days. <laughs> like Purim and Simcha's Torah. Thank you very much. Before you go home to start arguing about who I was talking about, <laughs> and who's the Rachel in the relationship, and who's the Leia in the relationship, and so on and so forth, I will take a few questions, or objections, or as good Jews, alternate speeches, but I will ask you to keep them short. But before I take the questions, I'm going to express my gratitude to the rabbi and Robertson for giving me the privilege once again, I think this is my third time here, right? My third time, once again, of addressing this beautiful, warm, hospitable, and most important, humorous community. Not all Jews know how to laugh at jokes. Some people think it's a conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank them very much for inviting me, and uh, it's really a privilege to meet you. For those who want, I send out a weekly essay through the email on uh, Jewish psychology and spirituality. If you want to get it, you can give me your email address before you leave, and I'll send you the weekly essay. And now we're going to take a few questions. We're going to need somebody to break the ice, and we can't rely on the men. <laughs> Unless they'll surprise us, we'll see. Anybody? Um, 
Any questions? Mom is not. Yes, I know it, yeah. <laughs> Embrace your difficulties, accept your challenges, but how? The best advice I give is assassination. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I could be arrested for a murder tonight. I didn't mean that. Uh, it's called an incitement. I'll tell you the truth. You didn't hear from me the words embrace your difficulties. I don't like that word. Because I think that word is abused. I've seen situations where people are being abused, where people are living with things they shouldn't be living, and people say, you got to embrace your difficulties. Sometimes you don't have to embrace your difficulties. Sometimes you got to get rid of your difficulties. <laughs> you don't always have to embrace your difficulties. You have to know when to embrace your difficulties, when not to embrace your difficulties. As a blank statement to tell somebody, embrace your difficulties, if you're in a job and your boss is impossible and abusive, get out! Now, with a marriage, you have to be much more sensitive and much more careful, especially if there's children involved. You know, today in America and Canada and Europe, we created a culture of divorce. You don't like the guy, you don't like her, move on. You have to know. What's the, what's the, what's the title of that song? You gotta know when to hold them, and you gotta know when to fold them, right? I know it's about gambling, but it's also true about Jewish men. In Yiddish, they made a they made a version of that song. Medavisen vence koyfen, medavisen vence loyfen. You know, you gotta know when to hold them. You gotta know when to fold them. Sometimes difficulties are intolerable. Sometimes there's behavior that should not be tolerated. People are accountable. They're mature adults, and you don't say it's awesome. It's challenging. This is gonna make me a good person. Sometimes it's unforgivable, it's intolerable, and people have to stand up to their behavior and be accountable for it. You know, it's very difficult to make a blank statement. Every situation has to be judged individually. What I was referring to is an approach to life. And that is, even in, in the best situation, people are different. And even the most beautiful husband and beautiful wife that have good intentions and are idealistic, people are different. People's personalities are different. And... Harmony is about really creating space for another person. It's really about understanding who the other person is. This doesn't mean every difficulty should be embraced and accepted. But it means generally I have to really appreciate who the other person is and not try to turn them into what I want them to be. It's true also with children. You cannot make your children into what you want them to be. You have to know who your children are and create an environment for them to be them. This doesn't mean all behavior of children is acceptable. It's not. Some things are unacceptable. But it also means I cannot turn my children into who I want them to be. I have to respect their soul. My children don't belong to me. They belong to God. My spouse doesn't belong to me. She or he belongs to himself or herself and ultimately to God. Even my body doesn't belong to me. 
I don't have the right to abuse my body according to Torah. It also belongs to God. I have to respect and know who it is. This aspect, how do we do it? We do it first and foremost through humility. Prayer is very helpful for this. Study is very helpful for this. Um, being a person who engages in kind deeds every day is helpful for this. Because these are things that expand consciousness. When you pray, when you study, when you help people, you expand your consciousness. And when you expand your consciousness, you can see things beyond your ego. And when you see things beyond your ego, you can make space for other people. When your consciousness is very narrow and limited, it's very hard to make space for other people. You become insecure, you become defensive, you become uh, protective. I probably didn't answer your question. <laughs> yes? You look back 50 or 100 years ago where there were probably less to do apart. Whereas today, with internet, TV, with entertainment, there's more to do apart. Is that good or bad for relationship today relative to 1,500 years ago? You mean there's more to do separate from each other? Yeah, people are doing more things today. Either they're both working or they're both, you know, going to a football game. Is that better or worse a relationship with all the technology that allows people to be more apart rather than locked up together in a confined home? I don't think that's an answer that can be answered black and white. It depends what they're doing with it. It depends what they're doing with it. Is a knife good or bad? Depends if you use it to cut challah or you use it to cut your finger. If you use it to cut challah, it's a wonderful thing. If you use it to cut your finger, you're a shlamazel. You know, is, is the internet good? Is technology good? It depends what you use it for. If you're using your text messages to flirt with other women, which is a very easy way to flirt today, it's horrible. It's going to destroy, it's going to undermine your marriage. If you use it to be connected to somebody fast and swift when you need something or you help something, you know, it's awesome. So I think that answer must be addressed to every person individually about how disciplined they are, how moral they are, how committed they are, and if they really own their life or their uh, toys own them. I mean, between Facebook and uh, Twitter and uh, LinkedIn and iPhone, some people don't own their life anymore. It used to be in the bathroom, at least, you owned yourself. <laughs> when you were in the shower, in the bathtub, on the toilet, you owned yourself. Not anymore. You're texting, you're answering emails. There's no space today you call your own. Even in sleep, the text buzzes, and you're awake. <laughs> so some people don't own themselves anymore. They belong to the whole world besides themselves. That, that's not good. That's not good. You have to have a space that you call your own. Um, and, and that's very important. It's important for a relationship with yourself. It's important for a relationship with, with your spouse. It's important for a relationship. Um, uh, I was listening to a conversation, and it's embarrassing to say, but I'll share it with you. I was listening to a conversation of my children. And uh, my wife asked them if they want me to read a book to them, if they want me to read a storybook to them at night, which I do sometimes. And one of my sons said, no, I don't want Taki to read a book. So she said, why? 
He said, because Tati is always checking his phone. And it's very annoying. I don't want him to read the book. Right? Now, I thought to myself, I put the phone on the side. You know, in every few pages, I take a look. Right? For me, that's perfect. But my children's imagination, that was a very powerful statement. And I learned a lesson. And the lesson I learned was, during homework, and during reading a book, the cell phone goes off. There's no vibration, it's off. If Obama really needs me, we'll send a helicopter. If Netanyahu doesn't know what to do in Gaza, we'll send a messenger. And if I'm desperately needed to fix the oil leak in the Gulf of Mexico, or Afghanistan, they'll find me. The Mossad and the Shinpet will find me. So for those two hours, you know, if my business goes bankrupt in two hours, it deserves to go bankrupt. <laughs> and if your secretary is quitting on you in two hours, she should quit on you. So if you can't shut the phone off from 6.30 to 8.30, when you're doing the homework, you're putting the kids to bed, it's a problem, but I learned it the hard way. I'm glad I didn't learn it when they were 19 in the therapist's office. You know, I learned it when he was five, so I can fix it. But that's very important to remember. It's extremely important. The cell phone's got to go off. That's the value of Shabbat. The value of Shabbat, whether you consider yourself orthodox, non-orthodox, liberal, humanist, left-wing, right-wing, atheist, agnostic, is one night a week, a whole night it's off. And observant Jews have it off a whole Shabbos. And I'll tell you, whether you believe in the Torah or you don't believe in the Torah, psychologically for a family, it's one of the best things. It's one of the best things for a marriage. It's one of the best things for children. They have, they have their daddy and their mommy for 24 hours, and they know nobody is looking at the cell phone. And I tell you, whatever your feelings about religion and observance are, take on that mitzvah. It's very, very wise to just do that. The Shabbat experience of no cell phones, having a dinner around the table, cell phone off, television off, in the traditional way of Shabbos observance is psychologically, sociologically brilliant. It would probably save many marriages and many heartaches. Teenage kids know, tonight I have my father. Tonight I have my mother. Tonight we're forced to talk to each other because the television is off. There are homes the TV is never off at dinner. So the kid comes home from school, father comes home, you would think that your child is more precious to you than the television show. And your child is. But fast entertainment is very compelling. So we ignore what's more important. And that's really one of the great, great contributions and in institutions of Shabbat. That would be my response to your question. Uh, some, some people like compare marriage um, to like a business partnership. Some people compare marriage to a business partnership. What's my take on that? It depends from which angle you're coming from. If you're coming from a dysfunctional place, or you're coming from a highly functional place. Which means, relative to many marriages, if a marriage would be like a business partnership, it would be great. At least, there's basic trust. 
At least there's basic respect. At least there's no hollering at each other. If all the criteria, criteria that is used for a business partnership would be used for a marriage, in many cases it's beautiful. But compared to what a uh, true marriage is capable of being, a business partnership falls very short from it. Because a business partnership, by definition, is based on the fact that we are two separate individuals. We just have a common interest. It's called making money. It's called growing this business. And for that common interest, we realize that we have to do things for each other. I'm in the business, you're in the business, we both want this common goal, and therefore, we behave a certain way. It's much better than an abusive marriage, of course, than a disrespectful marriage. But really, a marriage is far deeper than that. A marriage in the Jewish perspective is a fusion of souls. <coughs> it's where two people not only have a common interest, and that is we have kids that we both like, or we have a home that we both live in, you know? Or we eat at the same table, so basically let's just behave towards each other. But rather, a real marriage is two souls become one. In the Jewish tradition, the Zohar, which is the basic Kabbalistic text, says a husband and a wife become two halves of one soul. That concept of fusion is what a real marriage is. We're not just in a partnership because we have certain common interests, but rather we are two people, two souls, two personalities, and we have to remain two personalities because that's the beauty of marriage which actually congeal and become one. A husband and a wife, in the true definition of marriage, ought to see each other as one. Two, and yet one. Our lives are one. Our values are one. Our mission statement is one. Our lives merge into a seamless whole. I may be far away from my wife. We may be involved at the moment in two very different things, but we're still one in that difference. In that sense, it transcends a business partnership very significantly and very dramatically. Yes? Why would you want to do that? <laughs> but the only part I had a little bit, you know, difficulty with was that what if Russell never dies? What if you marry, like, what if That's the awesome. Land, I mean, <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. That's you? You're describing yeah. yourself? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm saying, That's awesome. You just said very, you know, very beautifully that, you know, it's two halves making a whole. Why does it ever have to be that Leia is this exhausted, tired individual where, you know, for me that, that's the moment. What if you never, what if Leia is really, you love everything about Leia. You don't see the, you don't, the exhausted, you know that already about yourself. You have that aspect of yourself. But if you're only focusing on the beautiful, on the ruffle, but in fact you think Leia is beautiful too. It's like, you know, like I don't like the negativity about Leia because I think Leia is, really a gorgeous person. I don't want to think about her negativity. So That's great. Somebody told me once uh, uh, love is blind 
and marriage and marriage you open your eyes. Um, somebody, uh, I think Woody Allen said, the great, great master, the great mystic Woody Allen once said, um, before I was married, before I was married I was incomplete, now I got married and I'm finished. <laughs> and, and, and you resent that, and I like that. Finally, some romance from a lovely young woman who's completely Rachel, and her husband is Rachel. So, um, um, so you're just like me. My wife is also Rachel. Uh, I'm Leia. She's Rachel. So. You're a lot of things, Leia. You know what I'm saying? Like, but I'm just saying. Listen, listen. Here's the deal. People think being complete and finishing something is the same thing. But completion and being finished is not the same thing. If you marry the right woman, you're complete. If you marry the wrong woman, you're finished. Now, what happens, now what happens if the wrong woman who you marry catches you with the right woman who you didn't marry? Then you're completely finished. sometimes need help to see it. You're right, in a case where the marriage is just one endless romantic symphony that begins and never ends, awesome, beautiful, but as we know, some people do have difficult moments. Some people have challenges. Some people go through difficult experiences. To ignore that and just to say, it's always beautiful for everybody, it's not. And sometimes life throws curveballs that make things not so beautiful. And Leia, personally, had a lot of struggles. In fact, Leia is identified in Kabbalah as the Balchuva, Rachel as the Tzadik. You know, Leia was supposed to marry Esau. You know that? And Rachel was supposed to marry Jacob. That's why Leah was fine. Why was she supposed to marry Esau? The reason she was supposed to marry Esau because Jacob and Esau were like Rachel and Leah. Esau struggled. In the womb of his mother he struggled. You know that? It says that when, Esau, when his mother would pass by pagan uh, centers, Esau would gravitate there. He struggled with idolatry from the womb. Whose choice was that? Not his. In the womb you don't make choices. It was predetermined. It was genetic. It was God. So Esau was a struggler. Some people often have to struggle with questions. They have to struggle with emotions. They have to struggle with certain mental challenges. Our job then is to help them see the beauty within themselves. See the wholesomeness within themselves. You understand what I'm saying? And if you treat you know, your spouse the way you want to be treated, and you love yourself, then of course you're going to love your spouse. I mean, Great. You wanna you wanna travel with me? <laughs> I'll describe Leia, you describe Rachel. How's that? You're right, and I always hope you remain right, okay? Anybody else? We're all perfect. You're perfect. I know, I know. The only time you made a mistake was a few years ago. I think you thought you made a mistake. That was probably the only mistake. <laughs> Any other questions? Don't be 
feel free to share. There's no taboos here. No one judges anybody else. We're all in the same boat. I have a Torah question. Yes. You originally noted that the Torah, is, you're suggesting the Torah is teaching us about the uh, Rachel. Technically, Jacob marries four dogs, four women. Oh. The, uh, but I have a point. You really want to take the therapy. <laughs> the maid servants of each one. But when later on, if he is going to acknowledge Leah as the one he really truly loves or should love or etc., technically he doesn't because he ends up going to Bila's bed most of the time and Reuben gets penalized for that because he moves the bed to hit what he thinks is an insult to his mother. And actually he's looked at as almost incest. Right? Or even depicts all this. So technically he's still going to the Rachel's side because the, the woman that he's with is Rachel's maid servant. That's just a curious thought concerning the... Acknowledge <laughs> 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 point well taken. <laughs> the truth is that Leia's greatness is that there's always a little distance between her and Jacob. That's what, that's what creates Leia. You understand what I'm saying? Yes. There is a little distance. Sometimes distance is the way of the relationship. That's really what, what, what makes Leia Leia. There's two journeys in life. There's people who are close to God by being close to God, and there's people who are close to God by struggling with God. That's also a relationship. They're fighting for it. A very nice point you made. Okay, we'll take a question because some couples have to go home to discuss some issues. <laughs> Any, anybody for a question? Huh? Okay, so yes. So how do you make room for Leia? So how do you make room for Leia? Huh? How do you make room for Leia? One is you buy her a one-way ticket. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. How do you make room for Leia? You make room for Leia by deflating your own ego. That's how you make room for Leia. You have to talk to your own ego and say this. Ego, ego. I know you love yourself so much, and I love you too. But you know what, my dear ego? You're not God. I know you like to play God. I know you think you're at the center of the universe. And sometimes that's very good. Like when you want to get a job done, you got to feel that you got God's power and you're at the center of the universe. But in a relationship, you have to realize that you can grow from another person's wisdom and depth. Because God didn't only create you in this world, he also created someone else in this world. And that means there is value in that person. Last time when I was here two years ago, when we dedicated, when this building was dedicated, I told you about a scene from Amadeus. Do you remember Amadeus? Mozart conducts a symphony. The Emperor of Austria, Emperor Joseph II, is there. He's tone deaf. So what does he do during the concert? He does what Jews do during rabbi sermons. It's called schloff. 
the cyberspace highway. There's an interconnectivity and a buzz with wires in the billions traveling constantly. And they don't have a place called nothingness. So when you ask your husband, what are you thinking about? It's like nothing. There's nothing women hate here more than that. You start suspecting that he's not interested in the relationship. Does he want to talk to you? No. We just like hanging out in the nothing zone. When we say nothing, we mean nothing. It's not offensive. It's not complicated. We just like the nothing zone. Women don't know what nothing is. What do you mean? Life is always vibrant and alive. There's something going on every moment of the day and every spaghetti is connected with another 100,000 pieces of spaghetti. So finally, when you convince your husband to sit down on your couch and not take a paper and listen to you, He's really trying to listen. But then the conversation starts. So from the beginning, you talk about the dress that was ruined in the cleaners. It's $400, and the guy doesn't want to take it back. Okay. So he has a mental note. Cleaners, dress, $400. He's a obnoxious. Okay, fine. After 11 seconds, you go to the next topic. The next topic, of course, is your kid doesn't like his teacher. Okay, kid, teach. The next topic is the leak in the room that's driving you crazy. So now he went from the clothes to the teacher to the leak. Then you discuss cleaning help that you don't have. So we went from clothes, I'm a man, from clothes to uh, kids to leak to cleaning up. Then you go to your job, then you discuss your mother, then your sister, then the bar mitzvah, then your brother-in-law, and then this issue, that issue, then his manners and what he looks like. By the time it's two and a half minutes, you've been dealing with 39 topics. The poor guy is trying to make filing cabinets because he's not spaghetti, he's waffles. So everything is separate, so it's 38. By you it's one, it's called life. Feeling, emotion. He doesn't operate that way, it's filing cabinet. 38 filing cabinets in two minutes. So the poor guy is now completely overwhelmed. So he has a choice. Choice number one is a bullet through his brain. Basically suicide. The problem is he loves you too much. And he doesn't want you to end up without a husband. So he dismisses the option of suicide. So he does the second to the best option, which will have you have a husband, and that is he falls asleep. So you're holding by item 39, and your husband is snoring. At that moment, you get very offended. He doesn't care about you. Little do you know that the only reason he fell asleep is because he loves you. He loves you so much he didn't want to kill himself from the stress of the ice and that's why he fell asleep. So the act of sleep which you see as being alienation is really the most romantic affection of the world. When he falls asleep you should actually mama's hug him and embrace him. Because he didn't kill himself. He wants you to have a hug. Instead you get upset. He wakes up two hours later. You're not talking to him. You're already suspecting who knows what he has going on. The poor guy doesn't know what hit him. Why is he upset? But he can't articulate this because he's a man. He's a waffle.
He doesn't know why he fell asleep. Really, he fell asleep because he's madly in love with you and he wanted you to have a husband. So my friend, you understand, sometimes men fall asleep not because they don't want to create space, but simply because they don't understand spaghetti. I mean, they know how to eat it, but they don't understand it. Right? They, they know waffles. That's sometimes. But other times, you know, you have to be able to laugh, but you got to be able to listen. You say make space for Leia. The greatest thing is when there's a disagreement in the house. When there's a disagreement in the house, you can look at it in two ways. One way is, she's arguing with me again. He's arguing with me again. When will this stop? Another way is, wow, that's so interesting. She has another opinion about this matter. How can that be? I'm right. <laughs> How can it be? That's so interesting. You know what? Let me be a scientist and study it. Let me hear what she has to say. And maybe, just maybe, I'll learn about reality from an angle that I didn't imagine. That will be a very enriching experience. Hey! I saw the world from one way, one way. My wife sees the world another way. Let me listen, let me try to understand, and maybe I'll see the world in another way. What that does to you is, what it does for you is, an argument, instead of it being a reason for annoyance and frustration, it becomes something to look forward to. An educational experience. Think about it. Next time your spouse argues, Hold yourself together and say, you know what, I'm going to utilize this as an opportunity to see life from another point of view and thus become a larger person. Till now, I was a person limited by my own paradigms. Let me listen to how you look at the world, and I will become larger than myself. And that way you look forward to an argument, and the argument becomes an exercise in real growth. And when you do this continuously, you listen to the other person and you try to see life from their perspective, things change. But to be honest, how many husbands really dedicate time to think about their wives as an independent person and what her needs are separate from him? How many people really dedicate time not to think how to answer their wife, how to get rid of guilt, how to come home with a good excuse. No, they actually spend time just thinking about who their wife is as an independent person. Who she is, what her emotions are, what her needs are, what her experience of life is. And conversely, women towards men. That's a very enriching experience. The same with your children, by the way. Not just respond to your children when there's a crisis, but actually sit down and think who your child is without a crisis. No crisis, everything is good. Who your child is, what their needs are, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, what they can become in life, what do you need to do to polish their diamonds so that it can glow. This experience is how we train ourselves to be attentive to the other person. And it's not always easy, but this is the stuff of a relationship. This is the challenge, and this is the reward of a relationship. Let me take one last question, if there is, because it's late. Yes? Should um, a husband be 
wife putting him down in front of everyone. Next. Should a husband tolerate his wife putting him down in front of other people? Um, either way, it's a wrong thing. It's, it's immoral. It's not the right thing either way. Not a, wife, not a husband putting down his wife in front of other people. Not a wife putting down a husband in front of other people. That is, it's, it's an immoral thing in a marriage. It's the wrong thing to do. In fact, in fact, from a Jewish perspective, whenever you're with a group of people, and this is about, you asked about business partnership. This is the difference. You are one with your spouse. You're not one with anybody else. Even your best friend is not your spouse. And therefore, if you have to make a choice between the dignity of the people around you and putting down your spouse in order to gain respect from the people, and you sacrifice your spouse because you want to find favor in the other people, from a Jewish perspective, that is a form of divorce. For example, you're in a restaurant, and the waiter brings the hot soup, and you're there with another few couples, right? And you're very polite, and your etiquette is perfect. Your husband, we know, is clumsy and absent-minded, and a little detached. And the waiter brings the soup. And your husband takes the soup, he's trying to be a mensch, right? And as he takes it, he pours it right in the other woman, <laughs> who dressed up beautifully and now there's hot soup on her. It's very embarrassing, right? And the wife turns to all the guests and says, he always does it. Huh? He's a <laughs> What did she do? To protect herself, she divorced herself from her husband and said, he's an idiot, he's a moron, I know, we all know. She divorced herself from her husband because it was very uncomfortable. Or the other way around, the husband turns to the people and says, that's my wife. You know, she has a bad temper. Or she's really not good with stress. He divorced himself from her to please the other people. That in Judaism is unacceptable because your spouse always comes before anybody else in the world. There's no one in the world who comes before your spouse. Not your business partner, not your investor, not even your very close girlfriend or boyfriend or your child. Your spouse comes first in the Jewish tradition before everybody else. And therefore you don't sacrifice your spouse so that other people should like you. That's a mistake and it's unacceptable. That's in front of other people. With each other, with each other, take the pot, knock it over his head. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's even in front of that's in front of other. What about on your own? On your own, you also shouldn't put down your spouse. You should give constructive criticism, but not put them down. If I tell my husband, "You're an idiot," "You're a moron," I won't accomplish anything. When he feels that I'm putting him down and I don't respect him, he'll just become defensive. Or if I tell my wife, "You know, you're really horrible. 
you're impossible. What, what are you gaining? You're just making her become defensive and you're distancing yourself from her. Just like if you tell it to your child. So even with each other, privately, you shouldn't put down the other person. You should tell the person, there's something bothering me about your behavior. There's something I think we can work on. There's something I would like to help you. There's something I have to talk to you about. It privately. So putting somebody down is usually never effective. If I'm very, very angry, I can say that. I can say, you know, I'm really, really angry, and a part of me wants to put you down, but I know it's not the right thing, but I have to tell you that I'm very angry. That's fine. You're expressing your emotion. So putting people down, you have to be careful with, even with a stranger. Is there a point in putting somebody down? What are you going to gain? You'll just make them become defensive. But in front of other people, a husband has to respect his wife, and a wife ought to respect her husband. That's a covenant that should never be breached. And other people have to know that. If people see that you put down your wife and you put down your husband, they will also put down your wife to you, or put down your husband to you. And that's unacceptable. It is unacceptable for a person to create any crack in a marriage. For me to say anything that will make even a subtle separation between a husband and wife is forbidden. It's a bad thing to do. I'm not talking about if somebody comes to talk to me about a challenge and we talk about it, but I'm talking about for me to make a comment to a wife denigrating her husband, even if it's true. The guy may be a shlomil. <laughs> or you know, a comment to a husband denigrating a wife is an absolutely unacceptable, it's a wrong, it's simply a morally wrong thing to do from a Jewish perspective. And if a husband gets assaulted when a wife does it, he's right. He's right about it. It's a hurtful thing. A wife has to be very careful. Men are more sensitive than many women realize, by the way. You know, one comment from a wife can drive a husband mad. Some women don't realize how powerful their words are. When your husband comes home, a nice word could turn his night into paradise. A harsh word could drive him crazy. Women today um, often are so feministic they don't realize how much power they have over the men. When women were more like women, they knew that with a joystick, they can change their husband's moods in three and a half seconds. With feminism, they learned that they're just like men, and they don't realize that they're more powerful than men, and that's one of the problems of feminism. Feminism, instead of elevating women's power, <laughs> sometimes decreases it, because the old women used to know that with a simple comment, they can change their husbands very fast, because men are very, you know, men are like something like babies, you know? You say something nice to them, and they're like angels. Try it out. Your husband comes home from work, give him a compliment. Before you tell him what a hard day you had, for like 20 minutes, say nice things to him. Then unleash everything. If for 20 minutes you say nice things to him, I promise you he'll crawl under the table and mop for you. Just tell him nice things. Tell him how, how handsome he is. Tell him how much you appreciate his work. You know, just tell him nice things. They have to be real. Women don't realize the power. When you say nice things to your husband that are genuine, He'll be a very sweet guy. I'm telling you, he'll crawl on four like a horse and do whatever you want. But for the first 20 minutes, just shower him with compliments, make him feel like a king, and then he'll become a schmata on his own. <laughs>
But if when you come home you make him feel like a shmata, then he has to feel like a king. How can he feel like a king? By revolting. By revolting. You want me to do this? No. You you use my credit cards. I pay the mortgage. You, 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 you don't appreciate me. I'm not doing anything. But if, of course, he has to be a king. But if you make him feel like a king, he's happy to be a shmata. Most of them are. Most of them are, as long as the wife appreciates. Women have to realize their power. Women have to realize their power. Complimenting your husband every day is a very good thing to do if it's a genuine compliment. Especially the way he dresses, if he dresses nicely. <laughs> uh, uh, the way he looks. Men like these stuff. The way he works, his ethics, his values, his commitments, his sacrifices. Uh, a guy was complaining to me that his wife calls him up in the middle of the day every day and she's like, what are you doing? <laughs> and every day, for 12 years, he has the same response. Imagine. She has the same question, he has the same response. And his response is, I'm sitting on a hammock and I'm sipping pina colada and I'm smoking a Cuban cigar. That's exactly what I'm doing. And he's like, what does she think I'm doing at 1 o'clock in the afternoon? I'm paying her bills! <laughs> aggravated, he's aggravated. The whole conversation could have been so different. One o'clock she could call him and say, my dear husband, I so appreciate your hard work for the sake of me and the kids. I miss you. I want to say hi. I can't wait till you get home, but take your time. <laughs> and I just want to tell you, I really I really like how you look this morning. I thank you again for your work. I don't want to waste your time. I just want to wish you a great day. Bye. And you know what? She hangs up the phone. He's like, what a wife I have. And she's like, what a husband I have. And the same thing happened. The reason she asked him, what are you doing, is because she wanted to connect to him. But men don't know that. When men hear a question, by them it's not an invitation for friendship, it's a challenge of an existential level. When your wife asks you what you're doing, the man thinks she's telling me, I'm worthless, I'm lazy, I'm futile, I'm insignificant, I don't exist, I'm a piece of dust, I'm a shmata. Who does she think she is to tell me and suggest to me? And the reason men feel that way is because deep down every man feels like nothing. And the reason is because Adam was created from Earth. And Eve was created from what? From a person. From Adam. So when you take Adam back to his source, he feels like dust. And when you take a woman back to her source, she feels like a man. So therefore, since every man feels really like dust, so when your wife says, what are you doing? What a man hears is, I'm doing nothing, I'm worthless, I'm dust, I don't exist. Who in the world does she think she is when I have 300 employees telling me what am I doing? <laughs> this is all unconscious, but it's all there. See, he's like, I'm sitting in a hammock, I'm drinking pina colada, I'm smoking Cuban cigars to pay your bills. Bye, leave me alone. <laughs> So really she's trying to connect. When she says, what are you doing? It's just her way of saying, let's talk. I miss you. I'm wondering what you're involved. But he doesn't understand it. He thinks he's challenging his right to live. <laughs> so what do you do when somebody challenges your right to live? You're like, <laughs> I will live in spite of you, my dear wife, who wants to poison me to death. 
He already hears poisoning to death. That's what he hears. And she doesn't know what happened. It's one o'clock. She's like, darling, how are you doing? And he's like, she wants to poison me. She wants to know if you feed a waffle before conversation doesn't help for the conversation. Um, well, usually if he eats too much, he will be, he, he will fall asleep. So you gotta feed him enough to put him in a good mood, but not feed him enough that he falls asleep. And you hold it as a reward that when he listens to the conversation, you'll finish feeding him. <laughs> I'm saying that in jest. Listen, food is important for survival and for concentration. Obviously, food can make people tired, but it's not the woman's responsibility to make sure that her husband doesn't fall asleep when she talks. It's the husband's responsibility. And here we get into the issue of codependence. A woman is not responsible for her husband's behavior. A husband is not responsible for his wife's behavior. Adults are responsible for their own behavior. So every husband is accountable for what he has to do in a marriage. And every wife is accountable for what she has to do in a marriage. And I can't live my life saying, if only I will manipulate this and this and this and this and this, I will get him to do this and this and this. He gotta stand up to himself, and I gotta stand up to myself. Yes, sometimes we gotta be a little clever, sometimes we have to use subtle tactics, sometimes. But generally in life, everyone is responsible for themselves. A husband is responsible to listen to his wife and not fall asleep. If that means that he has to eat, let him go eat. <laughs> there was a couple that, uh, the wife just hates cooking. She's a little prima donna, she doesn't like cooking, fine. She comes to me, what should he do? And he gets some of interesting questions. I told him, I know where you work. There's a restaurant across the street. Before you leave work, order dinner into your office. Eat dinner and go home. He's like, wow, that's brilliant. He was coming home every night upset that she didn't make dinner. They got into a fight every night. But listen, what, what are you going to do? Your wife hates him. So what? So you're not going to be married anymore because she doesn't make dinner? There's a restaurant across the street. Fresh your dinner at 5 o'clock. Order nine courses. Eat, 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 eat. Come home, say she is. And you know what? If once a week she makes dinner, you'll eat again. <laughs> I mean, no, we can do it. You'll eat again. What's the problem? And you know what? It works perfect. He eats dinner every night at his office. <laughs> he orders in the restaurant. And it's, you know, so you know, you have to know the situation. You've got to know the reality. And you've got to take responsibility for it. Okay, now we'll manage to take one last question. Yes? Going back to uh, Rachel and, uh, and Leah. If Rachel is uh, so beautiful, doesn't it uh, sort of bother her that she's really the second one and not the first one, and she's married to somebody who is already married? And how does she deal with it? That's a lovely question. You know, according to tradition, uh, Rachel gave signs to Leah 
You know the story. What happened was, uh, Jacob gave Rachel certain signs to signs to be able to identify her. And when she saw what her father was doing and she couldn't resist it, she didn't want her sister to be embarrassed. So she gave those signs to her sister so that she shouldn't be embarrassed. Which means that really Rachel was uh, extremely self-confident and extremely selfless to save her sister from shame. She gave up her signs. Um, so that was really the power of Rachel. Her kindness, her grace was absolutely extraordinary. That's on the literal level. In the psychological and spiritual interpretation of the story, it really works that way. When you date, you see Rachel. When you get married, you see Leah. When you work on your marriage, you remarry Rachel again. So that's really the process. You date Rachel, then you discover Leah. And then in the growth process, you recreate a marriage with Rachel. Because as you said, you find the beauty in life and then you create a second relationship that's based on maturity and honesty and suddenly Leia and Rachel become one so in the psychological story it's Rachel, Leia and then Rachel Have a wonderful night, a wonderful week, and a beautiful relationship. Thank you very much.